0: Hello, I am Clara Pavizi krieger I'm the RSA's current Medical Student Council Vice Chair. Welcome back to our podcast, Empower, a social EM series where humanity meets medicine. And I'm Anantha Singaraja, first year resident at Eisenhower Medical Center
1: in Southern California, and your current AEM RSA Secretary and Treasurer.
0: Awesome. So for our third episode, we'll be covering the topic of street medicine. We are excited to welcome our two speakers today Dr. Wen, an emergency medicine physician and one of the medical co directors for the Loyola Street Medicine Program in Maywood, Illinois. And then we have Alana Moore, a second year medical student and co street rounds director of the Miami Street Medicine Program.
1: Dr. Wen. Um, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you were
2: drawn into the
1: particular field of social EM? Yeah, so
2: happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So again, I'm Dr. Teresa Wynn. I'm an emergency medicine physician here at Loyola, which is in Maywood, Illinois. the western suburb of Chicago. I've been at Loyola now a little over seven years, and I wear a few different hats here. I serve as director of our Center for Community and Global Health, as well as medical co-director of Loyola Street Medicine, which was actually formally established in January 2020. Um, so for me, uh, getting involved in social EM has has been quite an evolution. So early on, my interests were actually more global and international health. So I spent a lot of time during residency. Um, rotating at different emergency departments in Haiti, Vietnam and Peru, and also teaching there as well, and actually a lot more of my focus was initially on international EM development. And over time, you know, as my kind of personal and family situations changed and international travel got harder, I, you know, recognized that there are health disparities to be addressed in my backyard and that it didn't, I didn't need to hop on a plane or have a stamp on my passport to, to drive change with vulnerable populations. And specifically with the homeless community, um, you know, we see them very often, uh, for a, a variety of complaints and, um, you know, every single person that comes in through the ED that is homeless has their own unique story and their unique, um, struggles too. And, and over time, I've been really invested in trying to kind of learn more about the specific population and helping them. And so uh, that's kind of how Loyola Street Medicine came to be. Very cool. And Alana, can you kind of go ahead and tell us how about how you
1: were drawn into this particular field of social EM? I know you're a second year med student, but um, was there something in undergrad that uh, interested you in this or was it being at Loyola that drew you in?
3: Yeah, of course, and thank you again for having me here. This is a wonderful opportunity, Um, but like you said, a little bit different uh, stage of my training here in my second year. I will say in my time off and between coming to medical school, I had a whole year where I was working in the ER while concurrently working in a homeless shelter, and I think that that whole year really solidified for me that this was kind of the part of medicine that I really wanted to find myself in. It's interesting hearing Dr. Wynn's story because I think that I similarly came into school at University of Miami thinking I wanted to focus more on global health. And then the second I set foot into Miami, I did realize how many people in our backyard needed our help. And I think it was a really, really stark contrast for me to see even just down the street's past Jackson health, our, our, university hospital is where we service most of our patients. So it's right outside the doors of our hospital. Um, but in terms of what really got me interested in that one year was, um, I was working in the shelter and actually got to know two individuals pretty well on like more of a social, um, background. And so we would work next to each other and talk about their different health concerns. Cause they knew I wanted to go into medicine And hearing their struggles, one of them was a 55-year-old man who had end-stage renal disease, needed to go on dialysis, and just couldn't fathom starting dialysis because he didn't have the transportation. He wouldn't have the time to step away from the money that he needed to get to just get from point A to point B. And then I would go from that shift to then working in the ER, where I'd see the same patients who, unfortunately, from some people were met with more... um, segregatory comments or like misunderstanding of their certain situation. And really having that contrast just showed me that that's ultimately what I want to work towards. I want to be in an environment where I can kind of advocate for these people and say, just like Dr. uh, Nguyen said, like everyone has their own individual story and we're not here to judge, just understand and support.
0: Thank you both. Um, yeah, I, I think it's so great to have two different perspective on this top, topic, you know, the physician side and the medical student side. Um, so thank you both uh, for sharing that. Uh, I know street medicine can be a little bit of a broad term and it can encompass multiple um, topics. So in your opinion, uh, and we'll start with Dr. Wen, what does the term street medicine mean?
2: Yeah, so I think it can mean something a little bit different to everybody. And and for me, at least what we try to strive for within our street medicine program is really trying to, uh, you know, address the unique problems of our local community experiencing homelessness through a, a psychosocial model of care that meets individuals where they are and focuses on their specific goals and needs. And so it's, you know, effectively bringing the care to them and, Taking the time to get to know their stories and making sure that they feel understood and trusted and really trying to break down those barriers that might exist between the homeless community as well as the healthcare system. And they're often very siloed. Dr.
1: Wen, can you um kind of describe the difference for our listeners uh, who don't really understand the difference between street medicine and rural medicine? I went to a medical school in rural Tennessee and um just want to kind of ta- be able to differentiate that difference for people who don't really understand?
2: Yeah, so street medicine, at least to in terms of what it means to me, is, is the implication that you're working directly with the homeless community. And uh, so that might take place in several different forms. So for example, our chapter specifically, we do our outreach at the CTA train station, which is where we know there's a large population of homeless uh, patients that are, are using the train and, and are considered continuous riders on the train. And so, knowing that they're there every week, uh, we actually, you know, set up uh, kind of a, a makeshift medical clinic where we also provide hygiene kits, hot food, uh, supplies that, that may, they might need in addition to the medical care there. And there are other models for street medicine. And for example, down the down the road, um, you know, just University um, UIC. Uh, actually has a slightly different model where their students and their team kind of go on foot with backpacks in hand to to various encampments that exist under the the bridges in downtown. And so it's just, again, at the end of the day, street medicine to me is, is bringing care to the homeless population, no matter where they are. And rural medicine, I think, is more kind of tied into, I think, a little bit more kind of geographical scope. So perhaps you're in an area that might not have as many resources or might you might still be serving more broadly other underserved populations in addition to the homeless community.
0: Awesome. And Alana, uh, can you share a little bit about what street medicine means to you?
3: Yeah, of course. I mean, a lot of the same things. I think that the most important thing to us, like Dr. Nguyen said, is that we provide a service where we're meeting our patients where they're at and it's a really unique care model where we're actually going to find our patients. And I think that um, for us uh, at University of Miami with uh, Miami Street Medicine, we really emphasize that we serve as a bridge to care. Um, I think that we really prioritize providing the best standard of care that we can, but we're there to fill the gap. And ultimately something that we always say is that we don't want to have to exist Which is a really interesting thing to like think about and we really try to have all of our students and physicians understand that it's unfortunate that we exist but we're there to provide a bridge uh, for patients that you know typically fall through the gaps. Um, and it's interesting when you talk about the different models of care, because we definitely have more of the, the latter model you were explaining, where we kind of meet up on campus, and then we, with our backpacks and our med bags, walk down the streets, um, like I was mentioning earlier, down the streets right past the ER, actually, is where we find most of our patients, and they know to meet us there. So it's all interesting to hear how different people practice.
2: Yeah, and I will say also that there is a larger difference, too, I think, between student-led and student-run street medicine programs versus some of your larger city or grant-funded street medicine programs. For example, I know out in California, they have um, a dedicated team of street medicine providers that range the gamut of physicians, social workers, case managers that have slightly more capabilities and have a regular presence within that community where they might have their own clinic that they can refer their patients to or maybe even a mobile unit. Um, and ability to do more testing labs. And again, that provides a little bit more consistency of care too within that population. Of
3: course. Yeah, we are actually, we've been growing into more of that sort of model. And it's been a really interesting thing to sort of manage as we progress. And we have actually picked up a free clinic that we work in conjunction with and can refer to. And we do have a van now where we can do lab work on the streets and an ultrasound and we're getting more providers. So it's interesting to see the evolution and how that looks on the streets and how we can provide different services.
0: Okay, our next question is, um, we'll start with Dr. Wen first. How do you approach um, providing care to individuals who are experiencing homelessness or living in the streets?
2: Yeah, I can talk a little bit about uh, kind of my experiences both in the ED and what we see on our street outreach, because I think there are some parallels and some differences as well. So I think it's important for any emergency medicine provider, whether or not they have experience with street medicine, to ultimately remember that your patient is a human, they have needs, they have challenges, and it's not just about that quote-unquote treat and street, right, that we talk about. And I know boarding is an issue, I know volumes are an issue, but I think our role as emergency medicine physicians also is to kind of stop and think about how can we break this cycle or how can we offer additional help to you may not necessarily end homelessness. You may not necessarily be able to put this patient specifically in a house that night, but maybe just getting a little bit broader understanding of why they're even there in that first place and what their specific needs are. And I think also there is a big misconception too that, you know, that individuals who are homeless chose to be there or chose to be in that situation um, or, you know, don't have or just don't have the motivation to kind of get them out out of this situation. Um, And then there's also a lot of, I think, individuals that are forced to go into shelters against their will. And I think something to keep in mind too is not, not all shelters are necessarily the best answer or solution for some of these individuals. I mean, think about having to go to a shelter where there might be bed bugs or think about going to a place where if you want any services there, you have to sign up for specific things like a Bible study or, you know, attending the religious services. Um, and, and also, you know, just that fear of having your belongings and everything you own potentially be taken away. I mean, these are, this is also why you see many, many uh, individuals experiencing homelessness. They've got multiple years of clothing. They have their personal artifacts. Everything is very, you know, well hidden and, and, because just the risk of losing that is just so extreme that you know they would take any measures to protect what little they do have, um, and I think just taking a time to sit and understand where they're coming from, and not just beyond that chief complaint, which you may deem non-emergent or emergent, whatever the case may be, is taking that time to say how can I help set this patient up for success and show that I care, and I think that transcends even to what we're seeing on the streets, right and Um, you know, I I think something to, to keep in mind too, is that every patient at the end of the day still has autonomy to make their own decisions. And so nothing is ever forced. Um, for example, I might see a patient that has a very severe infection that I'm worried if they don't go to the hospital, that they could potentially become septic and or die. But if they're not willing to go on their own, I'm not going to force them to go. And I understand why they may not, again, why they might have reservations or not feel compelled to do that, even at the risk of death. Um, And I think that ultimately goes back again to that model that we preach within street medicine of meeting people where they are and really taking that holistic approach. Um, And so in that case, if they're not going to go to the hospital, what are some other measures that you can take in the meantime? Can we provide them with oral antibiotics? If it's a wound that we're worried about, can we Provide them with enough wound care supplies so that they can at least make it a few days or the week until that they can see it, you on the streets again. And just again, really trying to set them up for success that meets them where they are, respects their autonomy, and um, still, you know, shows that you understand and you care about that individual.
0: Thank you, Dr. Wen. And Elena, I'm curious to hear your opinion on this. How do you, as a medical student, approach uh, providing care to people uh, living in the streets? Yeah, of course. Um,
3: I mean, a lot of the same things. I think for me, the biggest thing is building trust and respecting the person as a whole person and their being a patient as well as a human, as well as understanding their background. Um, I think that a lot of times, especially as a medical student, you know, we learn to take this very algorithmic HPI and uh, f- do a physical exam. And like we were talking about, you really focus on the present complaint that you see as a provider. Um, but oftentimes it's way more important to understand their background and why they're feeling this way and what sort of barriers they might have based on any recommendation we might think that they need. Um, I think that We've seen this countless times where we've had patients where we've gone through so many hoops to set up appointments and we've gotten them transportation. And then we didn't realize that that day they didn't have a stable um, set of food or like uh, anything set up. And so they actually were so hungry that they couldn't wait to get the Uber that we had set up for them. And then that went right outside the window because we didn't just take a chance to like stop and say, oh, we can also set up breakfast so that you can make sure that you can make your appointment. And it's little simple things like that. Like every time that you talk to a patient to understand, you know, maybe they don't feel comfortable going to see a primary care doctor because of something in their past. And it's really such a blessing that we as medical students have the opportunity to just sit down and talk to these patients and understand their histories and, really like what makes them into a person and giving them back that humanity, um, I think is the biggest importance for us, um, especially like just providing a listening ear.
0: Yeah.
2: And I will just add to that too, because I, I think a lot of times, um, in street medicine too, it's, it's easy to kind of perseverate on like the health aspects of it. I was like, we have to manage this blood pressure and we have to treat this wound infection, But just remembering that there's also a lot of other competing priorities, right? Is that, you know, maybe you can set up an appointment for this patient, but they still also need to get food. And perhaps they might need to stop at the bank and cash their check, or they might need to see their kids if they have kids. And maybe they also work part-time and and then they have to get back to a shelter by a certain time, because then if not, the doors will close and they get locked out. So just kind of, again, remembering that it's, it's really just not about treating that blood pressure. And that's why we kind of address again, largely that broader psychosocial model of care that we talk about too.
1: Yeah, definitely. And so starting a street medicine program can present numerous logistical challenges. Um, Could you describe some of the challenges you faced when establishing a program at your institution? And how did you overcome these challenges? Did you have any pushback either from society or from uh, your fellow uh, medical professionals?
2: So I can start with this. So You know, we are a fairly new program. We've only been around for a few years. Uh, I think what's been helpful is that we had a lot of other models within the Chicagoland area to look towards in terms of figuring out how students were involved, thinking about things like scope of practice, risk, liability. And so we were able to get a lot of those fundamentals and those logistics in place too. Another thing to think about too is, you know, is just how do we prepare our volunteers to work with a population like this. And I think even if you've had a a small amount of experience either rotating or or volunteering in a homeless shelter or even again seeing some homeless patients in a clinical capacity, it still can be really overwhelming to see individuals experiencing homelessness like on the streets. And I think there needs to be a significant amount of preparation that goes into that. Um, And so just kind of recognizing a few things: your motivations for doing this, your scope of practice, and then what you're what you're actually able to um, to do as an organization, and then also keeping in mind like sustainability. Um, so, who's going to staff these runs? Is it going to be a consistent presence? Will you have enough funding for supplies for for even just other things like transportation passes, food, um, and then making sure that you are doing this and still providing the same quality of care that you would for any other patient population. So we're not cutting corners here. We're not, you know, we're not providing them with less than quality care um, because they are deserving of just the same as anybody else.
1: Thank you. And Alana, what about you? Any uh, challenges that you kind of faced or you've heard about as you've been going through your program?
3: Sure. Yeah. Like I mentioned, I came in just as we were kind of getting our legs. So I can speak anecdotally to some of the challenges I know that we had as we were developing as a student-led organization. I know that it was particularly challenging for us uh, starting right during COVID and I know that we had some challenges just with what we were allowed to do and our scope of practice being students. Um, this ultimately led to us actually shifting to work under Dade County Street Response which ultimately gave us a way larger breadth of community partners Um, which I think has been really, really beneficial for us. Um, A lot of the same issues have arisen in terms of sustainability. I know we have an entire branch dedicated towards writing for grants, and we're actually trying to expand to have a professional grant writer, but that's always an issue in terms of funding. Um, In addition, it's been interesting to manage the program's growth, like I spoke about earlier, Um, being student-run initially and now introducing some professional staff, and then understanding how we might want to try to change our scope of practice and what we can truly expect from student volunteers in terms of the time and effort that they're giving based on this being a volunteer activity has been interesting, and just our capacity in general. I know that there have been times where we've taken on far too many patients, and then it's just not fair to our students which is why we're trying to shift to having more professional social workers and residents and physicians coming out with uh, our team as well on the weekend, so.
0: Awesome, thank you both for uh, sharing your experience with you know the process of, of starting a program like this. Um, so my next question um, is, as we all know, um, individuals who are experiencing homelessness, often have very unique health disparities that are facing. Um, Could you uh, touch upon some of the health issues that are particularly prevalent in this patient population? And how do you, as a physician or a medical student, address those issues? And we'll start with Dr. Wen.
2: Yeah, I can just speak more broadly um, in that there have been studies that have actually shown that there's a 32-year disparity in life expectancy between the chronically homeless and the general U.S. population, and that's pretty significant. Um, And as you can imagine, there are many other conditions that our individuals experiencing homelessness are more prone to. So again, think about your environmental exposure. So we're here in Chicago, and uh, it's been a very brutal winter. There have been multiple weeks here where it's been minus. Uh, 10, minus 20 degrees, and there are definitely not enough shelter beds, and there's definitely not enough warming centers here. And so we've been seeing a lot of frostbite injuries this winter. Um, And then something that's often talked about too is the repeated trauma that occurs over time from being homeless. So over the course of years, if you're chronically homeless, there's a lot of kind of neurocognitive deficits that can build from the repeated trauma, whether it's you know the mental health aspect of it of just having to go through this day in and day out or maybe being assaulted or maybe having things stolen and so that over time plays into I think also why that life expectancy is so significant in your chronically homeless versus um the general population and then and then also to we also talk about the what's called like the trimorbidity of chronic homelessness and that in- basically includes your, your kind of untreated chronic conditions, as well as mental health and uh, substance use disorders. And so again, those are all factors that, that build up over time. And then uh, maybe Lana, I'll, I'll defer to you to talk about some of your more specific cases, things that you might see on a street medicine run.
3: Yeah, of course. It's so interesting hearing you talk about environmental exposures because of course, Chicago and Florida couldn't be further apart. Um, And of course you have to deal with the winters and it's interesting because we have to deal with, you know, we have a lot of patients with skin lesions and sun protection, and we've had certain patients we've had to hook up with specialists for melanoma. And when it's hurricane season, we have to deal with hurricane preparedness and trying to get people more prompt evacuation, which is really interesting. Um, But in terms of specific things that we see on street runs, uh, the majority of what we do is pretty much basic wound care. And it really goes a long way. I think that so many of our patients, something you hear time and time again in um, street medicine is that these patients really are on their feet 24 hours a day. If they can get three hours of sleep, that's wonderful. But something we always urge our volunteers to do is, you know, have a discussion about foot health. And especially with a lot of our patients, they have various comorbidities, especially diabetes, where they're not checking their feet, and they're not getting clean socks. Um, So wound care is definitely something super important to us. Um, We always say socks is currency. So we hand out socks to everyone. Um, And it's really well received. It's also kind of an adjunct to building trust. I would also say just in general, what we typically do is managing just more chronic illness like diabetes and hypertension. Those are kind of the two mainstays that we focus on. Um, Personally, just like identifying the issue and then getting them hooked up with primary care has been a huge help for us. And then we get continuity every Saturday when we see patients, um, we've been able to manage their medications as well as connect them with primary care and some of them we've even been able to give at home blood pressure cuffs so we can see interim readings as well so I would say definitely the chronic illnesses as well as what you touched upon with substance use as well as mental health has been a huge thing trying to connect them with our behavioral crisis um, centers as well
1: and just touching upon the environmental factors so here at Eisenhower out in the desert in California um, we deal with temperatures up in gosh, the 120s. And so that's a big thing that we're seeing, dehydration, heat stroke. And it's funny, um, you know, we're talking about street medicine and some people think, oh, you know, I don't really have to worry about that in my area. We think uh, Coachella Valley, Coachella Music Festival, a lot of celebrities, a lot of snowboards coming into this area. They, that I think we often forget that there is still a population of homeless that we forget that we don't often see because they're not right in front of our eyes. But um, on our street medicine missions, we definitely see them kind of congregated out in the sun um, without uh, any sort of uh, protection. So, uh, in the summers, really, water is our currency. Uh, can't really get them uh, indoors, can't get them that AC that they deserve. Um, as Dr. Wynne had mentioned, boarding is a problem, but uh, that's it seems so little. But going out and walking around and offering bottles of water just um, really kind of helps build that trust, as you had mentioned, um, and is something so little, but something that we we make a big difference on. Um, so kind of uh, bridging to our next question, uh, building trust with patients is crucial in any healthcare setting. Uh, when working with individuals who may be distrustful of doctors in the healthcare system, how do you go about earning their trust? Uh, what strategies have you found to be effective in building rapport with your patients? Uh, Dr. Wynne, I'll let you go ahead and start off.
2: I know this sounds very basic, but I think truly at the end of the day, you know, just showing that you can listen, right? And that you're listening to what they have to tell you and trying to not pass judgment and and based on what they're telling you, figure out the best plan that they are willing to go through with. And you know, even just for example, a patient told me recently that he was not going to go back to the specific hospital because of the way he was treated. And Uh, Just feeling like he was stigmatized not only for being homeless but also for uh, having substance use disorder, and just recognizing too that that is a big reason and that is a big barrier for why homeless patients do not see care, or that they wait to a point where it's so dire that they end up in the emergency department or end up hospitalized, you know, and and utilizing a lot more resources than they had they come for some preventative care in the first place, and. Again, I talked a little bit about autonomy, um, but just, again, remind, reminding yourselves that, you know, you may feel like in your clinical classroom or clinical um, environment, if this patient had not been homeless or you know, there might be a different model or protocol for for approach that you might have handled a specific condition, um, but being a little bit more creative and being flexible in terms of how do you address those specific needs that the patient is willing to comply with Um, something basic, like, you know, for example, let's say you have a congestive heart failure and you need to prescribe a diuretic thinking about where are they going to use the restroom? Where are they going to have clean facilities? And what happens? We just talked a little bit about environmental exposures. What if you're in the middle of a summer and, and they're, diuresing so much that they become dehydrated while they're out in sitting in a hundred degree weather, right? So these are all considerations that you need to kind of be thinking about and making sure that it's gonna be an effective treatment for them. So maybe you try a lower dose of the diuretic or maybe you try to get them set up with temporary housing um, or see if they're willing to go to a shelter for a short time just so that they can navigate through kind of the acute phase of their illness.
1: Absolutely. And I I love what you say about autonomy. We definitely, I think as emergency medicine providers, just sort of want to quickly treat and address the issue and move on. And I think with street medicine, there is a patience that comes with it. We had a patient who uh, in the summer was dressed completely in black um, under this scorching weather, um, looked a little dehydrated, told us that she was dressed in black because her aunt passed away. Her aunt was the queen of England. Uh, and so she was very insistent that she had to stay indoors and wear this veil. Um, and so you kind of go along with it and every week you say, okay, well, we're going to check in. How's your, like, how are you doing with the passing of your aunt? Like the small little things to kind of build that trust and also let her know this is, this is absolutely what you want to do. We respect that. We're going to, we're not going to ridicule you about it or bring you back into reality per se. Um, Alana, what about you? What are, uh some ways uh, that you go about earning their trust um, or what you found effective in your experience?
3: Yeah, I think what Dr. Wynn said about showing that you can listen is paramount. Um, I think I've had multiple patients after long-winded discussions just about what they've been going through truly just break down saying that was the first time someone's truly like listened to them in years. And I think that's a really striking thing just as an individual thinking, oh, you know, I I lent a caring ear, but like this meant so much to this person. Um, Another thing that I've found is of utmost importance is just showing that you follow through, um, showing that you can be reliable um, and showing that you're going to be persistent and keep showing up. Um, I have had a patient in the past and this really stuck with me. And he said, you know, when we're out here, all we have is our word. And that really stuck with me because it's so true. When you say that you're going to show up on Saturday with socks, if you don't show up on Saturday with socks, that person spent, you know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, waiting for socks. And to you, it seems like such a small thing, but when you show up, it shows that you care. It shows that you respect them. Um, it shows that you guys are equal because you really are. Um, and that's a big thing that I don't think a lot of these people, um, really like take to heart, um, is how much you holding yourself to your word, um, really shows to a lot of these patients, um. And it all goes word of mouth too. what we see is we show up for one patient and then they tell a bunch of their friends as well that, you know, Miami street medicine, they can be trusted. Um, They actually, you know, gave me my medication. They showed up the next week. And I think that's a really big thing. Just um, small, small efforts have really big ripples um, and just to always keep that in mind.
0: Thank you both uh, for sharing. I I loved uh, both your stories. I think it's, you know, as medical student, we learn how to listen. And then as we go through our medical career, it's something that it's easily um, lost. And I think it's so important to go back to that. Um, So thank you for sharing that. And kind of going into our next um, and last question, um, we'll start with you, Dr. Nguyen. Um, Could you share with us a positive or a memorable experience that you had while practicing street medicine? I'm sure you've had a few, but if you could pick one uh, and share um, what impact did this experience have on you as a practitioner?
2: Yeah, so I always love it when I encounter individuals on street medicine and they end up asking how they can volunteer with us and I think that is such a impactful and meaningful aspect of this job is that you'll be caring for them and they're already thinking how can I give back to my community and it's great because now we actually have a handful of volunteers that come regularly that will help distribute food and hygiene kits and um are are just in there in the thick of things as much as we are in the trenches and they're still dealing with homelessness themselves and so that to me I think is kind of an ultimate
0: uh I think
2: display of of gratitude.
0: I love that Um, that's that's awesome. Alana what about you do you have any favorite memories that you can share with us? Yeah,
3: I I feel like I have so many. Um, One specific one that comes to mind is um, I want to say a few months ago, um, it's always really nice when you can solve an issue, you know, right then and there. We don't oftentimes see that it's more of a kind of chronic we're chipping away at this. Um, we had a lady who we met on the streets and she was in that vulnerable time where she had just lost housing and she was an older individual and we were really trying to get her back into housing and she had some comorbidities so we were actually able to make a bunch of calls with community partners and find the one last bed in a shelter. And I was the only person on the team who was able to speak Spanish to her. So I spent the rest of the day, you know, bringing her up to the shelter. I drove her in my car, Um, we dropped her off. I gave her my personal number. Um, And then a few days later I was in class and I got a call from a random number. Um, And I stepped out and I was like, who is this? And it was her in Spanish just thanking me, telling me how much I like me and our team had changed her life and how she was back on her medications and she was able to connect with her son. And you know, in that moment I was just like thinking how there are so many people we aren't able to help, but moments like that, it's it's worth that one moment that you can really get someone into housing and really change the trajectory of their life. So that was definitely a, a shining moment.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and just our stories. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Nguyen and Alana for joining us to discuss this branch of Social EM. This concludes our fourth episode on the RSA podcast Social EM series, Empower.
0: Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please join us for our next episode where we will discuss human trafficking. And if you're interested in hearing from a particular social EM expert or about a social EM topic, please tag us on Twitter or Instagram or email us at info at aemrsa.org. Thank you.